I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2020 Strip-Toe Farmer podcast series supported by AgriSolutions. In today's program, we share some tips and takeaways for transitioning to strip-till to include equipment selection, residue management techniques, and the importance of taking a systematic approach to adoption. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to AgriSolutions. AgriSolutions is the market leader in wearable parts, components, accessories, and solutions for tillage, seeding, planting, fertilizing, hardware, and inventory management solutions. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Well, getting berms built is only one step in developing a comprehensive strip-till system. What happens in the field and between the time strips are made each year is where critical management decisions are made, completing the cornerstones of an evolving strip-till practice. From evaluating planter performance, early emergence, and in-crop nutrient application needs, Lafayette, Indiana strip-tiller Gary Gangware is dialed into delivering the best-growing season environment for his strip-tilled crops on his 1,600-acre operation. He does a fair amount of post-strip-till fieldwork and likes to document what he's doing to see where he's falling short and how he can improve year-to-year. As Gary says, this is where we get better. It's not necessarily building the strips, but what goes on after that that determines our success. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, supported by AgriSolutions, Gary shares some of his early experiences moving to Strip-Till and a few lessons learned which shaped his future decision-making. I've been Strip-Tilling now. This is my second year. So I'm new at this, but I'm not new in agriculture. My wife and I have been building our farm for the past 42 years, and it's taken us a while to get to the acreage of what we are. I'm kind of a rare breed. I'm a fresh start farmer. My father was not a farmer. My father-in-law didn't pass on any ground to us, but he farmed. But I've always wanted to farm to find different ways. I did, many years back, ridge till. So a lot of the thoughts that I have have come from my years of ridge tilling. I then went to a conventional tillage with ripping and shredding and field cultivating to vertical tillage. And I just wasn't satisfied with one and dollars I was spending on horsepower as well as machinery. So the first thing I learned when I started exploring about strip tilling is how many horsepower do I I need. In talking with a lot of different fellows, I told them I wanted a 16-row system, and I was looking at the Henniker system, so I talked to several different Henniker guys, and they said, I needed as close to 400 horses I can. Well, that was the first step to get what is behind me. We ended up with an 8370RT from John Deere. Now, this pulls it very well, and I averaged uh, to 6.2 to 6.4 mile an hour faster, but I find it doesn't flow through the machine very well. So that's about my maximum speed. I can do 28 to 30 acres an hour, and I'm very pleased with that. So we continued on with the 16-row system, what we look to buy. 
But I encourage anyone that's looking into at least starting this, the other most important thing is you need RTK or some type of memorized steering system so that you can continue on your tram lines and getting everything on a grid because your platter to follow on the same lines. The other important thing that is very important is a bulk truck. I was fortunate enough our local fertilizer dealer had an older truck that could be DOT'd, but it still had a 14-ton dry fertilizer box on the back. They sold to me for $1,000 and has been a very reliable storage on the farm. So in theory, what I do is they bring bulk to that truck, dump it in, and then as I need it, it's there at the farm and I can continue on without waiting for someone to bring me some fertilizer. So that's important too. When I started, I thought to myself, what else can I do? I'm running across the field and I'm putting down my P and K, but what else can I do on top of that? Well, I thought, keep down erosion here in Indiana. How about a cover crop? So I got with Hanneker and asked them if I could put an air seeder on the back of their cart. And at the same time I'm stripping, I can also put on a cover crop right on top of the strip. That has worked very well. Corn going to beans, I use cereal rye, and beans going to corn, I use black oats or regular oats, and that has done very well. So I look to do that. I know some guys put on anhydrous ammonia at the same time they put their strip on. I chose not to do that. I use 28%, as you'll learn later on in a different process. The other thing is, what else can I put in the dry fertilizer to help and assist? We are looking into, and I was hoping to be there live to talk to the ESN people, to see if I put 50 pounds of ESN in the P and K mix if it would winter at seven inches below the surface. We'll find that out later. But what I did learn is on my spring strips that I had a corn, I did put the ESN 50 pounds to the acre in with the P and K just for a little boost. Don't have any strips, but just one more thing. What we are going to do is since I am going to use the same strips year after year is put 50 pounds of Pell lime to the acre in the PNK ahead of beans just to keep that seed or fertilizer bed just groomed a little bit sweeter for the soybeans. Checked with Purdue. I have a soybean specialist in there I worked with. He kind of scratched his head and he said, well, I think you'll triple your investment. So for my $2.50 an acre, he felt confident that we're going to get a good return on our dollar. In the future, what are we going to look at? We're going to look at what other dry products can I put in with my blend? And I think this is what the exciting thing is about strip till is can we look at put dry mag, zinc, boron? There's going to be other many different things of what we can try to put into our blend to keep that root zone in there just really conducive for the roots to come there and eat and dine and grow nice and healthy. One thing I did notice that a lot of strippers when you watch YouTube and all the different films out there is when they strip on their corn going to beans, they move over 15 inches. That kind of disturbed me being an old ridge tiller. You want to work your zone, your consistent zone, and you want to keep it sweet, controlled traffic pattern. We wanted to minimize actually driving on the row itself. I asked several people why or what they did. A lot of them said 
I don't know it, we just do. Or I notice on a lot of YouTube, it's so much residue on the road. So when you think of going this and preparing your farm for it, you need to look at the machinery ahead of time. I went with a Drago chopping head and we reduced the size of the residue tremendously with that chopping. And I leave about a three-inch stubble on top of the root ball to see what that was going to do. I got to be honest, I kind of ran a little bit of a test this year. I believed in the system, but I kind of wanted an ace in the hole. So I kept my Landall VT tool and I ran it across some corn stalks this spring to possibly dislodge that root ball. We were on some 240 bushel corn, which left a tremendous root ball there. And I did half the field. And then the other half, I just ran the strip tiller directly on the row. And final conclusion was I spent money needlessly to run the VT over the field. The stripper did an excellent job of dislocating that root ball, throwing it to the center, leaving a very good, desirable seed bed. Where I'd run the vertical tillage over it, it just started incorporating everything right into that zone and it didn't do as well. The planter kind of bumped around on it when I did do that. So I think you really need to, if you're going into stripping and when I watch YouTube, a lot of these fellas have not used a chopping head, but I think why not? It's bioengineered corn that is not supposed to break down and stand good. I think you need to get it in the smallest piece of what you can. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for making this podcast possible. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Veloda, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Gary Gangware on some of his nutrient management objectives with Scriptil. Controlled traffic patterns. Once again, another habit I picked up from Ridgetail. Don't drive on the road. So we have straddle duels on a combine. I went with a 40-foot draper head because I row my beans and we just never at all possible drive on that row itself. Uh, that was an eight-row corn head. I went with a, a lot of you no-tillers. You know the number one rule is never leave a footprint in the field. So you'll want to look at something lightweight and that's still going to do the job. I ended up with a honeybee draper head out of Canada, which is uh, much lighter than the McDonald or Deer or other brands out there. Honeybee used to at one time made the draper heads for the New Holland yellow brand. We have a local dealer here and I was very pleased with the head and the whole overall weight of that head. Once I thought I knew I was going to strip, then the next question gets to be, okay, I'm going to strip everything in the fall. Do I need to do anything for the springtime? They sell a strip freshener, the tool that you can run across the strip to kind of freshen it up for the spring. It's a nice rotary hoe. Uh, Years ago, to dry out a ridge, we used to run a rotary hoe on top of the ridge and uh, it would loosen things up. So I thought, well, do I need to do that? It's another expense. It's another piece to buy. My wife gets tired of me buying things all the time, so I didn't want to break her heart to say, well, I got to buy this, this, and this now. It is to minimize some of the machinery of what we've got out in the barn. 
The other question is trash wheels. What kind, what brand do I need to run? If I've got a bare open strip there, is there a need for it? Into a hard, firm springtime, how am I going to penetrate the soil? Well, what I came up with was a company by the name of Sunco has a fertilizer apparatus that you can strap onto the front of your planter row unit. And it's a two by two by two by two. And the double disc blades run four inches apart. They're staggered so that the soil can flow. It doesn't really throw soil, but it breaks down that hard crust. And then I went with a serrated planter blade that a lot of no-tillers use so that it can really penetrate. Well, I was extremely pleased on my fall strips. Once I went through and with a cover crop, it sliced, diced. And if you just focused only on that top of that strip, it was one of the most perfect seed beds you ever wanted to plant into. So I had running no trash wheels whatsoever. I'm not displacing any soil. I'm just loosening it up. And I'm very pleased. Where I did my spring strips, I was very pleased with it too, because if I had any clods or anything that wasn't as desirable, by the time those disc blades went through there, it really presented itself to be a really nice seed bed that the seed was able to. So that answered that question of what am I going to do with a firm strip? There's answers out there. I find it interesting. The old Sunco is for you people my age, the old Ralston system that would slice and dice and kick things around so that when the planter came through, you had a nice work seed bed. So that's that area and through there. I also like the idea of putting my fertilizer two inches over and two inches under on both sides of the plant into there. I've told many uh, people, I am a conservation farmer, and I think we all need to be conservation farmers. I'm a conservation of the wallet. Conservation of the wallet is first and foremost. If I'm going to do something, I want to maximize out what I'm going to do across the field. I find it fun to talk to a lot of different guys uh, when they hear I'm a conservation farmer, but a conservationist of the wallet, exactly, you can start imagining or thinking of things you can do. Found it interesting. Interesting. When I started farming years ago, it was uh, 1976 and corn was 365 a bushel. In 1977, corn went to a buck 65 a bushel. And 1976, Earl Butt said uh, corn will never be below three dollars a bushel. We only have upwards and outward to go. World population is going to well exceed our production. He encouraged farmers to dig up their fence rows, put as much ground out there as we can into production. Well, when a dollar 65 came, $1.50, and those years, a lot of veterans my age can remember the 80s. I scratched my head and said, everybody's making money but me. My fertilizer guy is making money, seed guy is making money, and my machinery guy is making Who can I cut out? Well, seed, I need seed, so that's that. Machinery guy, I loved him dearly. He's a sweet old gentleman, old John Deere here in Lafayette, and I didn't love him that much. So I looked at ridge till to plant, cultivate, harvest, plant, cultivate, harvest, plant, cultivate, harvest. I like that. Then it got into chemicals. Well, I'm cultivating. How can I cut out my chemicals? Well, now, and I have for many years, continue to cultivate no matter what system I have. And that's the apparatus behind the tractor behind me. We just got done cultivating our beans. I band spray. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. 
in conserving things, our program on planting is I put a third of the nitrogen on with my pre-emerge, a third of the nitrogen on with my planter, and a third of my nitrogen on with the cultivator. All that I'm able to cut back on the required pounds of N because I'm spoon feeding it and still get the same results and the same production out of the soil consistently throughout the years. With the planter, we put on 28% and 18-16-0 with a little bit of zinc in it, 50-50. And we put that on 23 gallon to the acre and that adds quite a bit of kick to it. With the double openers, I'm able to put that on spread between the rows and able to do that. Then with the cultivator, I'll put on the last third of the 28% nitrogen what I've had. It comes down to that one last thing that I scare every farmer in this area. I wish to be in the crowd to see a show of hands who loves to do cultivating. Of all the groups I've talked to, no one will raise their hand. I say, who hates cultivating? And everybody raises their hand. I say, what's the number one thing you hate about cultivating? Well, talk to a 60-year-old, it's going two mile an hour on a hot summer day with no cab and falling asleep and going two mile an hour and you see a weed all day long and the cultivator gets there and it goes right around the cultivator and you didn't kill it. Well, if I had to go two mile an hour, I'm going to get a different job. I do like, this is the fourth Henniker cultivator I've bought. This is the new Colipro units uh, behind me. We just put together this year on a 16 row. I go, depending on how much nitrogen I need to put on, that's my limiting factor is speed because you can only push so much volume through a small tube. But when I'm doing beans, I like to do 7.2 to 7.4 mile an hour and get going down the field. At that kind of speed you're talking, I average 34 acres an hour. So depending on the size of your field, you can clear off quite a few acres in a very short time. I just love to cultivate. The other thing where I save money is with the cultivator, I band spray. So I put a full rate of chemical on, but only in a 15-inch band. Our local chem farm dealer has set up on our cultivator nozzles that just point towards a row. I can raise them up. I can raise them down. I can change the fans. But anything that passes between those fans is covered at seven mile an hour. I'm not worried about drift because I've not got my nozzles elevated. I think it does an excellent job of getting into there. The other reason why I like cultivation is I've yet to meet a weed that is resistant to that steel when it cuts its roots off. Anything between the row will, in fact, be killed. And now we get into water hemp, horse weeds, grasses, and so on. I am only worried of weeds in the row itself because that's where the cultivator can't get. Oh, I've heard many a guy say, well, gangwork for crying out loud, you're cutting the roots. Yes, I am. On our farm, if you expect to live off of shallow roots, might as well die now because I'm going to force you to put them deeper. And so I'm not at all afraid to run that cultivator between the rows, beans or otherwise, into there. You also find out that once you do have a growing crop, and I learned a lesson here, always have a spade in your pickup truck, dig up a plant. I'm simply amazed at how the roots go straight down in that strip. I tried to sneak over to my neighbor's farm to see what his uh, conventional tillage was doing, but I got to admit to you, I couldn't get my spade in the ground and uh, finally gave up because at my size, I was going to get it in there or I was going to break the spade or I was done. So I didn't. That was my test. But in the strip, it was nice mellow soil and went on in there. 
band spraying is important in my operation. My wife told me one day I was calibrating and it's June and all the neighbors, they were done and going on vacations. Uh, and she looked at me and she says, you know, everybody's done. Here you are still out in the field. What's going on? Uh, why don't you be like the other ones? And I quickly figured up real quick. And I said, well, I'm saving about $25,000 on herbicide. <laughs> and she looked at me and she says, get out there, get calibrating for crying out loud. And it was just a reality check what we do. Yes, I'm the last one in the field. We farm 1,700 acres, and I'm safe to say that I get over my field. Yes, you work a little hours, but I've got a system that I can go fast on the calibrator. As you see behind the calibrator, we have an all-steer cart that runs behind. There's 400 gallons for the Roundup and 1,600 gallons for the 28. I can fill up Roundup twice to the once of the 28. So it goes in pretty quick and it you can cover some eggs. So every 80 acres, I really got to stop and refill and go. To a lot of operations, that's a pretty good sized field. When I'm in beans, I connect the two tanks together and I pump the Roundup in the back tank to the front tank when I need it. And I can uh, stop every 200 acres to fill up with Roundup. So once again, efficiency, time, and get going on there. I do put on a full rate of spray. This year, I've been using Roundup with Dicamba. I also throw in uh, Radiate Max NK and Nutrient Manganese. These two are for roots, P and K, and feeding the bloom. I put on a full rate, but only covering half the farm. So I can add these things divided by two. So the cost keeps down. If I wanted to put on an insecticide, a fungicide, I could put on a full rate that the economics come and cut the price in half. So you can save some money. On corn, in the spray and straight roundup, I've been putting a radiate and a product called Rye, which is nitrogen and phosphorus foliar feed on top of that. It's really been a great asset for me to do that. I think in all the conferences I've been to, nobody's really talked about how we can save money after we strip. Strip is the first step. Remember I told you earlier, RTK. Well, once you get RTK, you memorize where the planter went, where the stripper went, and now your cultivator remembers where the planter went. No more of this cultivator blight. The hardest job about cultivating now is staying awake. As all of you know, that when you go to an auto steer, that's where you really got to keep. However, it gives you an opportunity to watch your equipment safely without wiping out a row so that you can fine tune it. And that's what I'm constantly doing is fine tuning the tractor speed, depth, and so on and so forth. But I'm extremely pleased with the results I've been getting out of cultivation against neighbors are increasing water hemp is, is getting to be the big issue. I don't have any escapes whatsoever because my weeds don't get built up to the resistance of Roundup because not every acre gets Roundup put on it. So therefore, it minimizes that. Yes, I could go to non-Roundup and put on some regular corn and do a post-spray and save some money. Why I don't do it, I don't know. I ask myself every year I should uh, because I'm cultivating and post-spraying anyhow. So we'll play around with that a little bit better. I think it's all important when the young man, and I can't say it enough, the next generation starts looking at how we're going to farm and how we're going to survive in some of these tough times. Phosphorus is going to be the big, big issue. Here in Indiana, we have several spots that they're pulling samples
samples out of open ditches and creeks, just trying to catch farmers from over applying phosphorus and the movement of it. I got to be honest, I didn't go to college. I came out of high school and started farming. I bought my first combine when I was 16 and did custom combining neighbors. Uh, my dad asked me, I went to him one Saturday and I said, I need a ride to the local town. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, well, I bought a combine. Dad never drove a combine, never owned a combine. I said, what? what? I said, well, yeah, I bought it, and I'm going to do some custom combining. It's just what I did. So I started right away, but I learned real quick, you've got to survive the ups and downs. Also, young men, listen, you got to set yourself apart from the rest of the big operations. What's your theory going to be? I have more landowners telling me, I'm going to watch you. I like what you're doing with that farm. Well, thank you, Gary, for sharing your tips and personal experiences evolving your strip-till system. Again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-blast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the first episode in our 2021 podcast series. For Gary Gangware, AgriSolutions, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.